AI policy, algorithmic regulation, and U.S.-China research collaborations today with Matt Sheehan and Hadrian Puget, both of Carnegie. Hadrian is on an open technology policy fellowship. Welcome to China Talk YouTube. So Matt, you recently came out with a paper exploring all of the dimensions of U.S.-China AI research collaboration. So Matt, why don't you first give us a brief snapshot of just how prevalent U.S.-China AI research collaboration is, and then bring us back to the beginnings. Sure. So uh, when it comes to collaborative research, to like jointly publishing AI papers and working together in AI labs, uh, the U.S. and China are, first off, they're number one and number two in terms of total AI publications and elite AI publications. And then they're also by far the largest sort of pair of collaborators. So the U.S.-China collaborations greatly outnumber U.S.-U.K., China-Australia, any other combination you can come up with. And I think that's almost by a factor of five relative to the next highest collaborative pair. If you really want to dig into that, I highly recommend the Country Activity Tracker, which is a project by CSET that really lets you dig into the data. And we, we put some of that in our report. So basically, you know, you have U.S. and China as pretty clearly the global leaders in terms of output of top tier AI research. You have them as the number one pair of collaborators. And then you throw a million different geopolitical, ethical, logistical, you know, COVID induced problems at that relationship. You got a very fraught situation. So the, what we were doing in the paper is trying to unpack the nature of not just the U.S., but democracies in general, collaborating with China on AI research. And so kind of give us like a state of play and then give a set of recommendations, hopefully actionable recommendations in terms of how should we think about this and how should researchers, institutions, governments make decisions when it comes to working with China on AI research. In terms of U.S. and China leading AI research, the U.S. obviously has a like a very longstanding lead in terms of global scientific output across not every single discipline, but the vast majority of disciplines. And this has been going on for a very, very long time. China's rise is much more recent. And one of the things that I tried to do in the paper is give almost a potted history of 25 years of Chinese AI development. So going back into roughly the late 90s, which is before the deep learning revolution of the present day, before AI was a business model that was on everybody's mind, and before China was thought of as, as a technological power in any capacity. And when we go back that far, I think it changed the way that the two countries interacted in AI. So like one of the first big interactions between the two of them was when Microsoft set up its computer science research lab in Beijing. It's called Microsoft Research Asia. It was set up in the late 90s. The founding director was uh, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee. It was sort of established by Bill Gates in part to draw on talent from there, and then also to secure Microsoft's sort of place in the Chinese market to a certain extent. And I, I often look at the founding of Microsoft Research Asia as like an interesting snapshot of how different things are today from back then. Back then, you know, the U.S. government, U.S. society is still very excited about integrating China into the global economy. You know, the Berlin Wall has, has fallen. We're still on this, you know, China eventually going to kind of turn into us one way or another. And mostly we're going to profit from it in a great way. Our big corporations are going to profit from it. And China was seen as so far behind in most forms of technology that it wasn't at all seen as problematic that Microsoft would open a cutting edge research lab there. 
That lab turned out to be a very, very important accelerator in the development of China's early AI ecosystem. Within a span of just a few years, it turned into what MIT Technology Review in 2004 called the world's hottest computer science lab. And it became a training ground where lots of the future founders and CTOs and technology presidents of China's leading internet platforms and then AI companies would come out of. And it also was producing like cutting edge research on its own. So this is still in the pre-deep learning, pre-sort of geopoliticized AI era. And Hadrian can help fill in the blanks here in terms of like the development of AI, but starting somewhere in between 2008 to 2012, you have like the early rumblings of deep learning eventually bursting onto the stage with its great performance, breaking records at ImageNet and whatnot. And in this period of time, what I think is important is that China is developing and fostering its own internet giants. When we think about AI competitiveness, I think a big part of it is just like, do you have giant internet companies that hire tons and tons of engineers that have tons and tons of data and tons and tons of users? I think like an overlooked ingredient in China rising as an AI power is just the fact that it was able to foster its own homegrown internet giants. As deep learning is taking off globally, China is rising as a technological power. It's still, I'd say, up all the way through 2017, 18. It's still pretty much overlooked by Silicon Valley and overlooked by the U.S. government. They don't really take it seriously as a, as a technology competitor. Suddenly, 2017 National AI Plan, Trump administration in office, the pendulum of kind of assessments of China's uh, technology capabilities and specifically AI capabilities swings from like one end to the other. It goes from thinking, you know, China's a technological backwater. They'll never catch up because they don't have free speech and free markets. And it swings all the way to the other side of, look, Xi Jinping says they are going to be the world's number one AI leader in 2030. And that means they absolutely will be the world's number one AI leader in 2030. At the same time that the U.S. government is waking up to Chinese technology prowess, they're also waking up to how like deep and rich the research ties are between the two countries. The fact that there's so many Chinese students populating leading computer science labs in the U.S., leading tech companies. And so the U.S. government kind of has this, in some ways, I think, rather knee-jerk reaction of, China's a technology power. They've had all these ties. That means that the ties are directly what led to it becoming a technology power. So therefore, we need to cut the ties, and then they will fall off, and they'll never be able to keep up with us. So to recap, we have a world in which Hu Jintao invites Bill Gates to Zhongnan Hai and says, thank you for making the software that I use to do all my daily business, all the way to, you know, the state council in 2017, talking about how China needs to be an AI power. And then over the past few years, this sort of research, which has been pretty uncontroversial for most of the 21st century, all of a sudden getting a lot of unwanted attention from the perspective of these scholars who are, you know, publishing all these um, cross-Pacific papers. Let's now go through the different vectors of collaboration. So you mentioned joint research and publications, students in the U.S., conferences as well. Another thing that I think is really interesting that's particularly unique to, to AI research is this idea where your innovations are published openly. Matt and Hadrian, do you guys want to talk a little bit about how that norm has developed in, in computer science over the past few decades? Um, yeah, so to understand this sort of publication culture around AI, it sort of grew out of the publication around computer science, which was very much about, first of all, about conferences rather than in many other places, you do journals and so on. Here you would publish in conferences, but you still had this whole peer review system. 
So there's peer review to get into the conference. Exactly, yeah. Peer review to get into the conference, whether it be a poster or you get a sort of bigger presentation or something, but you have this peer review system. So Hadrian, why do computer scientists publish openly? So at first in computer science, there was a pretty big culture around conferences where your work would get peer reviewed, but then by the end it would still, through the sort of conference procedures, end up being public, and this was always a pretty big part of the culture. And then what happened is, I believe it was Cornell made this database called Archive, where people could put what are called preprints. So before the peer review, they would put up a print of their paper as the, especially in machine learning, as everything started to move really fast as a way to like stake that you had gotten this result and that you had had this moment at sort of the cutting edge um, in the world, even if by the time you get around to a conference, someone else has beaten you. And this has actually changed as a result um, a lot of the culture because people weren't waiting to have things peer reviewed like in many other scientific endeavors. Quite often people would publish on archive, publish their code, and then people would be iterating on it before it ever got peer reviewed. And so things got to move a lot faster. There were obviously some replication crises where all of a sudden you could be less sure of the results you were seeing and a lot of like little tweaks, but overall it seems like it helped the entire movement move a lot faster and it was very, very open. Anyone could <laughs> access any of these. I think this is really important for understanding kind of the way that knowledge is disseminated in AI. I think one of the key like interventions that we're trying to make in the paper is disabusing a lot of policymakers, especially American policymakers, of the idea that, hey, if we just stop collaborating with Chinese researchers, if we just stop co-authoring papers with them or opening AI labs where we work together, if we get rid of those connections, then they won't be able to kind of leech all this great AI research off us and they will fall further behind. In reality, like machine learning is in general like a, a highly replicable field. And with the rapid online publication, basically as soon as a paper is up on archive, researchers anywhere in the world who have the base level skills of coding, of compute, of access to data, they can replicate that result. They can build on it. And so AI has turned into this like very fast spinning progress cycle one that's not really mediated by conferences and where the knowledge is not bound up just in these co-authorship relationships. And I think that should inform the way we think about cutting ties with China on AI research. If we stop collaborating with them, it doesn't mean they don't get access to the best leading edge results. Those results live on the internet for everyone in the world to access. But what's interesting, and we're recording this on Tuesday, February 7th, where uh, Microsoft just did their Bing chat GPT, reveal and tomorrow Google's going to be doing the same thing is that this dynamic may be changing as the types of AI as the sort of biggest greatest AI developments are not necessarily sort of immediately uploaded to archive for cred points but are turned into billion dollar companies. DeepMind CEO recently gave an interview to Time Magazine saying that Quote, we're getting into an era where we may have to start thinking about the freeloaders or the people who are reading but not contributing to the information base. And that includes nation states as well. He declines to name which states he means, quote, it's pretty obvious who you might think. But he suggests that the AI industry's culture of publishing his findings may soon need to end. Thoughts on how AI transitioning from a interesting thing you do in a lab to something that is going to have dramatic ramifications for the global economy may impact the sort of publishing culture that we've seen develop over the past few decades? Yeah, I think it's important to note that the reason this was open at first, I mean, part of it is this sort of 
cultural, open science, people, everyone, everyone wants to work together elements. But really the, the reason companies were so okay with this is that for them, it was a way of sort of staking out their reputation as leaders in the field, attract a lot of talent, while a lot of the applications weren't that commercializable. And now as we're getting to this point where the cutting edge is looking commercializable, where OpenAI has sort of put chat GPT out there and been like, we can make something out of this. There's this sort of natural tendency to be like, okay, well now the stuff we're putting out is actually really valuable. And so we're gonna do it a bit more behind closed doors. And so, yeah, I see it very much as this like knee-jerk reaction to the fact that all of a sudden this stuff that seems like it was still like cutting edge, but not really, you couldn't make that much money off of it yet. Suddenly you can. And so you get a bit more secretive. I think this is also like a huge cultural divide within the AI research community. And it's like split along several lines. There are people who have been taking a version of this approach of like moving towards more closed research. And there's different levels of that. You can be sort of fully closed off as in we're going to make a product. You can use the product, but we're not going to tell you anything about what is behind that. You can access it through an API. There's other versions where you kind of write a paper describing what you did, but you don't give the full code or anything like that. And there's the other extreme is where you fully release the model. You release the weights of the model, which is essentially like the results of the training run. And then with just a sort of a, a very small amount of data, you can give someone everything they would need to recreate this model short of the compute. You give them essentially the model that's already been trained. So within that, there's a spectrum there. And, and you have a cult, I, I hesitate to call it a culture war, but it's very culturally divisive, the question of whether or not companies should release these. So for example, like OpenAI was one of the first to say, hey, we're going to release GPT-3 we're going to first release it in a sort of a closed gated form. We're going to give access to some people and then slowly open that up. Facebook immediately responded with like, this is a violation of global science, open science norms and oversight. We're going to recreate the same thing even bigger and we're going to completely open source it. So you have this in a lot of cases, academics and people who are sort of in it more for the quote, pure research. They're very allergic to the idea of closing this off. So you have business reasons to close it off and you also have potentially like safety reasons to close it off. There are some people who say, you know, as the models get bigger and more powerful, we don't want anyone with a handful of GPUs to be able to recreate this potentially dangerous in different ways model. And I think it's going to be a long time while we watch that kind of like cultural shift play out in different directions. My bet is that the culture loses when there's enough money and enough regulatory attention put on this stuff. Yeah, it's like really nice to want to work at a place that, uh, you know, abides by the sort of publishing norms that you're comfortable with. But like, what if the other place quadruples your salary? Because that's how much like not abiding by that norm, like will trickle down to you as a AI researcher. This sort of thing, once it really hits the big time and you start getting into nine, 10, 11 digit dollar numbers for the potential impact of the technological change, you end up still sort of abiding by more collegial academic norms. And I think that the sort of bull case for this in AI is some, is if something like, if the sort of technology ends up playing out where stuff like stable diffusion, which is biased more towards being open, ends up by dint of it being open, like sucking in more talent to be able to create stuff which is cheaper and like roughly comparable to what DeepMind and OpenAI can do. But if not, 
it seems hard to me to envision a future in which, you know, the latest and greatest stuff still ends up being open for all. Uh, am I wrong here? I think it's going to be hard to predict. I'm interested to see what will happen once the, the gap sort of between what's private, the knowledge that's privately available and the knowledge that's publicly available gets bigger. Stable diffusion was made at a point at which that gap was really quite small. And OpenAI, for example, would publish these sort of, if not the full uh, model, at least instructions on how to build the model, basically. As that gap gets bigger, it seems possible that we see fewer of these open source things, unless there are some people who feel really strongly that it should be open source and they're really smart and they can keep up and work on sort of a, a smaller salary. I think there's this other interesting elements as well, where as, as private money comes out of this open AI research space, whether that, that gives more leverage to the sort of the government supplying public money to make certain demands. And if they start to view this as more and more strategic, they might start to sort of pull those levers and tighten some of the, the publication norms uh, and make that a sort of constraint with the funding. And so I think that's sort of another place where we might see some, some tightening. One of the big recent OSDP initiatives was enforcing publication of data when you sort of receive government funding to, to allow other scientists to make it more easily replicable. But, you know, when, when you go from, okay, you're doing some like nice like bio thing or like psych study to here's this like super powerful do you will use technology that's going to define the 21st century, you, you might actually end up having this sort of reverse instincts come to play when public funding ends up becoming more more prominent in the space. Yeah, and they're trying to make a, a national AI resource. So a place where scientists who may not have the funding to run these huge models can sort of rely on government help. But again, that maybe gives them another level of control in terms of like what can be run on that, what can be published and so on. Yeah, I mean, the, the national AI research resource, it'll be very interesting because, you know, you had Facebook making this argument earlier in the 2020s being like, look, don't do anti-competition on us because we need to be like big and powerful to fight TikTok. And whether or not that dynamic ends up playing out for pushing the, the research and, and development envelope on AI models, the role that Nair has to play in that sort of thing seems very unclear because only look at looking at this question from a like who's ahead US versus China perspective there is a world in which the developments that a Nair ends up bringing to the space end up doing the sort of thing that kind of stable diffusion did where the where you kind of narrow the gap of what's extant in the world versus what's inside the, you know, quote unquote, American national champions, which may not be good if your only focus is relative national competitiveness. I think in a lot of ways that kind of that sole focus on this is like a very like one dimensional race, one person is ahead and behind is is pretty problematic. And is I think what that conversation is missing is the fact that like the way that I've been framing it in my mind lately is like, who's winning the U.S.-China AI race? AI is. Like, AI is the thing that is searching ahead and is sort of established as, like, outperforming expectations in many ways and is rapidly going to get integrated into all kinds of real-world services. The U.S. and China, like, they're both very strong. They both have cutting-edge labs that are capable of building these models. While it does take very, very smart and talented people and it takes a ton of compute and a ton of data to build them, I don't think there's a world in which we can truly like claim victory in an AI race. 
AI itself has advanced to a point where it's more about a question of coexisting with the technology at home and then coexisting with each other, recognizing that we're both going to have very advanced AI capabilities. And, you know, China is already starting to like lay the groundwork for what it sees as its way of coexisting with the technology at home by rolling out its own sort of algorithmic regulations and whatnot. I think a lot of times that that framing is basically used by big tech companies to deflect anything that gets in the way of making profits. When I, I, I just think bet on like long-term stability of the U.S. political system, long-term stability and like health of the U.S. economy rather than being able to sort of knock away all these tech regulatory measures with the boogeyman of China. I, I just, I'm worried you're going to keep losing that argument, Matt. Uh, maybe not with me, but with like America. Uh, I mean, we just we just freaked out about a freaking balloon for three days. And once like the rest of the world beyond China Talk listeners understand this technology's power, I feel like this will probably be one of the first things that folks end up focusing on where we are relative to China. Yeah, I, I think we've been focused on that for a while. Like that's a, that was basically my work from like 20, you know, 17 to 2020 is coming up with metrics for, you know, measuring who's ahead of who's behind. Usually it comes out yeah. like it's a little bit of a wash, different strengths and weaknesses. And one way or another, you're not going to be able to definitively win that race. When I look at like history, we kind of have seen what social media as a technology and as one that, you know, you could make the argument strategically. We want to be ahead of China. We want Twitter to be globally dominant, not, you know, Weibo or whatever at the time. And I think the cost to U.S. competitiveness or the cost to U.S. society of basically letting these companies kind of run rampant in the social media space without regulation, pretty clear. I think, and I think that that cost, we need to like bake that into our own ideas of letting AI diffuse without any regulatory burdens. Similar things are going to happen in the information space, in the employment space. And so that's, that's my sort of argument by analogy in terms of our own historical experience. I mean, as someone who can only earn a living because of social media. I have a slightly different take on, on that narrative, Matt. But yeah, let's stay on let's stay on AI for a second. So Hadrian, Europe's freaking out, it seems. What are they trying to do to hold back the floodgates? And why are you skeptical that what they're trying to achieve may not be realistic? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So the EU, with respect to AI, is trying to limit the kind of AI systems that can hit the EU market, because the EU is just this agreement between lots of countries to coordinate their markets. And so that's the sort of lever it has to pull. And the way it does this is by very high level separating AI into different applications, and then those applications into prohibited, high risk, or low to medium risk, and then essentially laying out these requirements called essential requirements that all the systems must meet before they can be put on the EU market. And these essential requirements are actually intended to be very high level. There'll be stuff like make sure that you have appropriate, your data has appropriate statistical qualities or that you've done sufficient something or another. A lot of these sort of, sort of vague words 
And then what's going to happen is that they're relying on these standards that will be sort of more technical, more grounded, to kind of bring like a bit more precision to these essential requirements. So currently they're working on the AI Act, which is going to have these essential requirements, and they've just started working on technical standards that are going to come support the AI Act. So right now we have these like principles, which like seem fine, but you argue in a recent piece in Lawfare that AI standards are uniquely hard to set. Why is that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of answers to this question. I think they're going to be difficult for all kinds of reasons. Um, one that I think underlies a lot of this is just the, the need to deal with a lot of uncertainty. And I think just uncertainty in terms of evaluating these systems. I think this uncertainty maybe comes from two main parts. First of all, just how diffuse and complex the harms from AI can be. How it's not just you know, physical safety, but it's also, it can be bias. It can be even harder sort of harms to society as a whole, shaping information environments. The AI Act isn't going to get at all of that because it's based on certain applications, but it's going to have to start to contend with this. And so suddenly an answer of what is necessarily in terms of accuracy, in terms of robustness, uh, what is a sufficiently representative data set, all of that is, starts to be very contextual and it's complicated to make some kind of unifying framework to get at that. And then on the other hand, I think there's also this technical uncertainty. And here I'm thinking especially of neural networks as systems that are very complex, of which we have a poor understanding, which can fail and behave in unintuitive ways. And therefore, it's hard right now to just take one of these systems and confidently say how it's going to behave, which is sort of what these standards are trying to get at, is trying to you know, make a list of metrics such that we can confidently say, this system will be fine. And so I think the uncertainty from sort of both of these parts in terms of evaluating a system, the harms it's going to do and the technical side, means that it's going to be hard to make standards that just lay out universally a set of metrics and then like a line that you need to pass to be safe or good enough. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Let's let's sort of bring this down to an example, right? Like we have ChatGPT, which if you try to have it, you know, tell you QAnon conspiracy theories, like if you just ask it right now very directly to do that, it probably won't. But over the past two months, you've seen people come up with very creative ways to have a chat GPT do things that the creators did not intend by like imagining something or pretending it's a play or telling it you're in like safety testing mode or this, that, and the other thing. And as a regulator, like I can't imagine how, you know, you can say if anyone ever takes a screenshot of your AI doing something that we don't approve you, we're going to like fine you hundred thousand dollars you know if it if it took them like 10 tries then we're only going to find you a thousand dollars like given the nature of the black box of these models which is not going to be solved anytime soon it seems very very difficult to imagine some sort of regulatory framework where there isn't like an actual trade-off between innovative capacity and sort of like the capabilities of products and the safety concerns yeah exactly i think i think when you end up in this kind of situation where you're uncertain about whether or not you should approve the model. You maybe just don't have enough information. In this case, you know, have you, no matter what you try to do with ChatGPT, probably someone's going to manage to find a way around it, but you don't have a good sense of how easy that's going to be, of how, how far they're going to be able to take it, for example. In those situations, what should standards say about them? And I think a key question is, when do we consider that we don't have enough information to approve them? 
because I can see standards being a lot about sort of almost a checkbox exercise of like, as long as you haven't found any problems doing X, Y, and Z, like it's fine. But I think there's a chance that we just don't have metrics that are comprehensive enough. And as a result, you're going to end up with situations where you just don't have enough information. And that's going to be really difficult. And I think then other sort of regulatory pieces are going to have to come in. So things like the threat of liability, where you can call expert witnesses, for example, that can sort of attest to whether you took a reasonable amount of risk or you didn't. Um, I think those are going to sort of start to be key and we'll be able to give sort of more contextual sort of granular information about the, the particular situation. The way that I tend to think about it is that like a lot of standards that we're used to for either digital systems or physical systems, you're describing a mechanistic process. Like if the, you know, the TCP IP internet standard, you know that if you send a packet to this address, you're going to get this response and you can essentially like describe the entire process. And if the machines themselves are not broken, it's going to produce like a predictable result. AI is fundamentally operating over like a probabilistic space. It is, it is trained. It's forming, uh, you know, a million different intricate connections based on data sets that are not the same each time. And there's not a, there's not a reliable way to say how it, what output it is going to give for any given input. You know, the classic example is if you take a picture and you say, hey, recognize this as a stop sign, and then you just alter like a handful of pixels in a strategic way, suddenly it thinks the stop sign is like a cow or something like that. They don't have a common sense framework and they don't have a, uh, there's not like a mechanistic relationship that we can describe between them. That's at least how I think of the difficulty of setting AI standards. You're not describing like the interlocking of two pieces that are always going to operate the same way. You're trying to set bounds around like a probabilistic process that might just fail in a totally weird way that you didn't anticipate. There are, for example, medical standards where here you're dealing with something that's sort of equivalently complicated, like the effect of a drug on a body can vary hugely depending on the person, depending on what other medication they're taking, depending on all kinds of circumstances. And what you end up with is some medical standards. So you have some encoded information about what the best thing to do is in each situation. But then you also have something like the FDA, which is a regulator and takes like a close look at each drug and decides whether or not to pass them. And you also have a lot of information that isn't encoded in standards because best practices change a lot and all these decisions are very contextual, both in terms of like the intervention, the person that's being done on, the place it's being done. And so when you end up at the, the state where you have to figure out, for example, in a court, whether someone adhered to best practices, you end up calling in experts to give their testimony and sort of help set this, this reasonable standard. And I think it'd be a shame if in that case you had standards that were bad, because then all of a sudden, as a medical professional, you could prescribe drugs in situations that didn't make sense and then refer to standards as well, like, you know, I was just following this, like, globally accepted best practice. Adrian, can you talk a little bit about, like, the political economy of these standards? What is driving the current EU approach? Sure. I mean, so the current EU approach is just their approach to product regula regulation in general. This, is, this isn't anything new. They sort of intentionally write this regulation, have the technical details sorted out in technical standards, and then have this sort of liability angle as a sort of backstop to a lot of this. And then if you read the AI Act, it does a lot of sort of institutional infrastructure for how to enforce the requirements. So that's where like the EU is coming from and how those have emerged. The world actually in general has a pretty 
strong culture around standards, which are supposed to be these sort of voluntary consensus-based agreements. And ideally, they should be coordinated internationally. And the EU is ruffling some feathers, to be honest, in that it makes the standards here that are produced a bit more legally powerful than, than you would normally have for standards. And it's also willing to go against, for example, standards that are made at the international level because it considers that to meet the sort of requirements from its own legislation, it needs to go a bit further. And so there's, there's some politics there in terms of control over standards, the sort of deferring to international standards versus making your own local standards for your own local needs. And there is right now a real question about what can the world agree on for AI standards, given that it seems like a lot of these technical decisions sort of have values embedded in them. And so we have seen this space get more politicized over the past few years. Do you have a theory on how you think it's going to shake out? Yeah, I think the EU is probably going to sort of stand their grounds, make the standards their way. They are going to defer to international standards to the extent they can. But right, I mean, at this moment, the international standards aren't actually, haven't actually progressed that far. And the EU has a deadline. So it sort of needs to to start getting all this done anyways. I think at the international level, we're going to create standards. The sort of value of those standards right now isn't clear to me. We'll, we'll have to see sort of how much they end up really, yeah, getting into like the meat of like what is actually considered good enough versus just making lists of like possible metrics you could use, but that none none are like really the full picture. Yeah. So let's, let's walk through your like bull and bear cases of AI standards at a national and international level, like being something useful for the planet. I guess the bear case is obvious, but maybe what's the uh, what's the bull one? Yeah, yeah. I so the the bull one is just sort of always the opposite of the bear one. I think the the worst possible scenario is that we make standards that give us too much confidence in these systems by using just a sort of limited set of of metrics, evaluation speci- specifications, whatever you'd like. I think best case scenario is they encode what we know without being overconfident and then make it clear the situations in which we don't have enough information to make informed decisions. And I think be like really sort of cogent and clear about that. And then in terms of how that ends up trickling down into each country's regulatory system, that's super context dependent. But I think at least with, with standards like I described, they, they can't be sort of abused or misused within any sort of countries than regulatory framework. So Matt, China is also doing its own version of algorithmic regulation. What's, uh, what's the backstory there? Yeah, so for a long time, China, like the rest of the world, was saying a lot of things at a very high level about you know, AI ethics and they're forming their committees and, and they're participating in, in venues like the UN to like have conversations about this. But in the last two years, so starting from around the end of 2020 through the present day, they've actually gotten very practical nuts and bolts in terms of passing regulations that will meaningfully constrain algorithms in the way that are deployed. And the two highlights from this, the two first forays are a binding regulation on recommendation algorithms and then a binding regulation on what they call deep synthesis, which is basically generative AI initially starting from deep fakes. That was their kind of initial target. And they brought it to generative AI on the whole. And, you know, for a long time, I, I wasn't that interested in the sort of very high level abstract 
conversation about this stuff, but it's actually, as it's gotten more real, we've seen China emerge as one of the biggest experiments that we have going in terms of how to, how regulators and governments can try to get their minds or their hands around algorithms and constrain them in a meaningful way, or at least increase transparency in a meaningful way. So I'm spending a lot of time looking at the nitty gritty of what China is doing on this front and then contrasting it to a certain extent to the EU, whereas the EU has this big, you know, horizontal one regulation to rule them all in the AI Act. China is taking this more sort of opportunistic or more vertical approach where vertical means like you pick an application or you pick an issue area and you tackle that one at a time as opposed to trying to come up with one all-encompassing regulation. So I think it's it's a really interesting moment for people in the U.S. that we basically get to watch these two experiments play out. You know, one sort of big tent regulation in the EU and a bunch of targeted regulations in China and see which one actually ends up being kind of more tractable and what can we kind of pick up from the two of them. Matt, do you want to talk about this piece you wrote with Sharon Du where you sort of went through the requests for information, I guess, that the Chinese government is asking of firms. What does that tell you about how at least one corner of the bureaucracy is thinking about what matters and doesn't from an AI regulatory perspective? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the the piece that you're referring to is, I think the, the headline is what China's algorithm registry tells us about AI governance. And we're focused on this thing, algorithm registry. The the full Chinese name is Suanfa Beian Sitong. So technically it translates as filing system We'll call it registry here. So this was created by their first algorithmic regulation, which was the one on recommendation engines. And then they carried over this registry into the deep fakes regulation as well. And I think it's the most kind of interesting, like cross-cutting component where they're basically saying, if the algorithm that you as a company, as a developer have deployed in the world falls within these regulatory frameworks, then you need to submit a algorithm filing to us. And... On first brush, it was very unclear what this meant. You know, it, uh, like, does this mean they sort of hand over the entire code? You know, do they have to hand over their whole data sets? Is the Chinese government essentially like getting the, the full 100% transparency and control of these algorithms? That was kind of the one extreme interpretation. The other extreme interpretation was this is totally meaningful list. They're just going to have them fill out forms where they say, you know, it's a deep learning algorithm that uh, recommends content and it tries to be good and not bad. And what Sharon and I found is that while there's not sort of intended to be public facing information about this, we were able to find basically the instruction manual that the Cyberspace Administration of China had published to give to companies so that they themselves knew how to register their algorithms. And if you take the instruction manual and you zoom in on it, they have sort of screenshots of the actual algorithm registration process. And through those screenshots, we can actually gain some insight into what they're asking. So a lot of the stuff is self-explanatory, like the use case of the algorithm. How do you navigate to the algorithm? Very high level stuff like that. But they do get into some more interesting requests, which they ask them to list all public data sets that they use. They ask them to list all private data sets that they use. They ask them to classify their algorithms as to whether or not they use biologically identifying characteristics. So are you taking in data like facial data and or other sort of biological identifiers? They asked them to fill out a algorithm security or safety self-assessment test, which I'm still trying to get my hands on what that actual test is. But I think when kind of take a step back and look at the sum total of the information they're gathering, 
it ends up looking like a interesting foray into forcing algorithmic transparency. But in this case, it's transparency just towards the government, not towards like society at large for predictable reasons. And it, it actually ends up looking somewhat comparable to some things that have been put forth in U.S. civil society. So one of the more popular sort of mechanisms or proposals for algorithmic transparency is this thing called model cards, which was a concept invented by some researchers in academia, some of them formerly at Google, where it said, basically, if you train a machine learning model, you should have to fill out almost like a one pager on the model, on the data sets, on, say, how the model performs across different age groups and different ethnicities. So, you know, you're forced to like identify, does this better identify white faces than dark skinned faces? Does it better identify men than women? To fill out this kind of identifying inf or this kind of performance metrics for the algorithm, you have to fill out uh, information on sort of security concerns or options for misuse. And in a lot of ways, what the algorithm registry looks like from the outside, from the limited window we have into it now is like a form of legally mandated model cards but where you have to switch like the values and the things they care about. Obviously, the Chinese government, primary concern, information control, stuff like that. Model cards very much came out of the ML community that's concerned with like fairness and bias and issues like that. So I see I see the algorithm registry as kind of a. It's an interesting information gathering process for the Chinese government in the same way that when they were trying to start meaningfully constraining stuff like Weibo, social media platforms in China. You know, there, there was an era of the Chinese internet being the Wild West in that way. But they slowly spent a lot of time working with companies, getting insight into how the systems work, how they can be censored. And eventually they were able to kind of tighten their grips and, and effectively control like the social media space in China. And I think the algorithm registry is one potential. It's like they're trying to build the intellectual scaffolding to do similar regulatory controls on algorithms in China. It's interesting thinking about algorithmic regulation and whether the rubber is going to hit the road faster in the EU or China. Because, you know, talking about uh, our, our chat GPT doing QAnon stuff earlier, America is just going to be less freaked out about that because we have the First Amendment. But in China, if I was working at Company A and I wanted to ruin Company B's day, I would get my best prompt engineers to have company B's model say some outrageous stuff and post something on Juhu saying, look at all this terrible stuff this company said about the party. And, you know, so as much as we have folks in the extended open fill universe who are stressed out about AI safety, the folks who are probably most stressed out about it in a near term context are engineers at Chinese firms building large language models who don't know what's inside, but are almost certainly going to get blamed if their models end up spitting out this sort of content that would not make it past the Great Firewall. Yeah, it's going to be a huge challenge. So, I mean, Baidu has announced that it's trying to roll out its own chat GPT-like product sometime in March, April. I would not be surprised if it gets delayed for exactly this reason. But, you know, what you described earlier, it's be, people have different phrases for it, but you can kind of, quote, hypnotize the model or you can essentially trick the model into producing bad outputs. And that gets very, it does not seem like there is a super clear way to maintain with like a high performance and a generally useful model while preventing that type of outcome. Maybe Baidu will just take a very rigid approach, which is just like the word Tiananmen can never appear in any output from this. I think it's going to be much harder to constrain these if you want to keep them very flexible. Maybe the Chinese versions of these just end up being 
significantly less flexible with just much harder, like hard encoded blacklists in a way. We're trying to get at, in the US, we're trying to get at some pretty nuanced thing. Like maybe you can say Nazi, but only if you're saying the right thing about Nazis, um, not the wrong thing. Whereas in China, it might just be like, there's no, there's no right or wrong thing. Just put it on the blacklist. It, it can never say that word. Yeah, maybe in like 2007, you could get by with just not saying Tiananmen or Falun Gong or whatever. But in 2023, in Chinese discourse, like what is considered Fanhua, that that definition is like constantly expanding. And it's not just, I think if you could snap your fingers and just have the, have your large language model never talk about politics, like that would not save you because it would say, you know, American movies are better than Chinese movies and someone would get really mad at you. Historically, the, the right move has been to be skeptical about the idea that like freedom of speech, you need freedom of speech in order to have like high performing apps and high performing technology systems. That just has not been true over time. But with something like ChatGPT-esque capabilities, we might actually be running into an area where that gets a lot thornier and a lot more difficult to resolve. I think it is interesting to see how China seems to be trying to put basically the tools in regulators' hands to then do some kind of regulation um, in absence of any really clear idea of how to regulate these things at the moment. And I think that's something we're seeing a bit of in, EU, in the EU, which is an emphasis on also a lot of documentation that follows through the whole life cycle of, of the AI system. Because I think to some extent, there's the sense that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But if we at least get this transparency, we can like give regulators the tools they'll need to to step in if it seems like there's a there's a problem. Yeah, I think it's easy to like shoot down any of these things as they're they're not feasible. They can't meaningfully constrain the algorithms. Like we don't even know how to meaningfully constrain an algorithm at this point in time. And that is all like true in the immediate term of everything is kind of a one shot thing. But I think there's a very meaningful thing going on here in terms of, as Hadrian said, both the EU and China trying to just give their regulators tools so they can learn what they don't know, they can learn what is meaningful, they can learn what is not meaningful. And the idea is over time, you slowly build up the regulatory muscles that let you actually do this and, and institutions and laws. So Matt, I do want to talk about this emerging technology observatory that CSET made uh, that you referenced earlier, which uh, created some really cool charts in your paper. I think both of us remember a world in which the sort of discourse around US, China, and AI did not have the sort of quantitative scaffolding that this tool now provides. So what did you, what did you think was so cool about it? What questions did it answer for you? And what would you encourage other researchers out there to start poking around in as they try to um, uh, uh, make the most use of this new tool. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. It's uh, just to flag for users, it's, you can find it at eto.tech, where ETO is Emerging Technology Observatory. So this is a project by CSET at Georgetown. The place that I've spent the most time is in the country activity tracker, which is focused on AI, which lets you basically filter through all countries over, I think it's a 10, maybe like a 12 year time span you can filter by sort of different technological area and you can see sort of output in terms of total AI publications. You can see collaborative pairs. You can see what are the most cited research papers and you can filter it a million different ways. And this is exactly what I was sort of like dreaming about in 2018, 19, when the whole world was instantly sort of freaking out just because China said it wanted to be world AI superpower. But back then it was like, 
people just, you know, took people's word for it. If someone famous who might know something about AI said, oh, China's way ahead, then people were like, oh, well, I, I guess that's it. I guess China's way ahead. And I think a lot of the work that I and people like, you know, Jeff Ding, Helen Charla, a lot of the sort of usual suspects of the, of the China plus AI community, a lot of the work that we did to just try to lay some very minimal foundation under assessing where the country stand in terms of research output, in terms of internet connectivity, in terms of comparing data sources, stuff like that. It's finally been all like put together in one place by the Emerging Technology Observatory. So it's useful to, for a million different things. And I just encourage people to go in and, and play around with it. So Matt, I mean, you, you talk about the usual suspects. I feel like there are 15 people whose job it was in 2018, 2019 to look at US-China technology. And I saw that 10 of them were doing AI. And my response was to zag and be like, ah, eh, maybe it's like covered enough. So I just want to shout you out for being on the right side of history in a sense. But <laughs> I, I want to bring it to the other thing. Now, Matt, as one of these, uh, as one of the handful of uh, US-China AI OGs out there with uh, your five years of experience looking at this stuff, you were mentioning before we started recording that you were kind of stressed out by all the progress that you've seen. What sort of leads you to be more worried than excited about these technologies really starting to hit? It's going to be extremely hard for us as like societies, both like political societies, economies, as like just social human beings to like get our minds and our economies and our regulations around all the different uses of AI and the trajectory of progress and stuff like that. I, I think we need we either need more time, like the, the, the pace of adoption. I maybe could slow up a little bit or we just need a probably a much more intensified effort to to get our minds around this intellectually and then to like get our sort of social and political institutions around it. It's clearly hitting the big time very, very quickly. Something like ChatGPT hitting the big time. I mean, you could say, oh, it just you know it generates text. That's not all that disruptive, but you can see the way it it filters into so many industries, affects so many people's livelihoods affects our information environment in so many different ways. You know, the AI industry is hitting the gas in terms of progress and deployment. And I think that governments around the world need to hit the gas in terms of thinking about this in like a regulatory context. There are clearly so many good applications of it, but uh, I think the option to just wait five, 10 years and then say, okay, let's see what went really bad. And then let's start to try to regulate it which is kind of what we did with other major uh, sort of social and, and commercial technologies the last decade. I don't think that, I don't think that's viable in this context. We're just sort of headed face first into a world in which more and more of our decision-making and our work is delegated, delegated to these systems. And we don't have a full understanding of the impacts that's gonna have, how that's gonna tie into to society. And I think everyone has the sense that it'll work out, you know, like, Things are complicated, but like we sort of sort of finagle our way through. I think in this case, I mean, we don't have to use AI systems. And I think it's sort of fair to try and hold them to a higher standard than we've held a lot of other things we've you know thrown out into the world. Especially if this is, as I think many people are framing it, as this sort of like paradigm shift in the way humans sort of experience the world and society is structured then maybe it is worth taking sort of a good hard look at it and trying to prevent some of the harms rather than, as Matt was saying, just sort of be reactive. 
you guys have a song? Sure. Yeah, I was going to shout one out. Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite China-related songs, which is uh, Monkey Bee off the uh, Journey to the West album by Damon Albarn, I think is the right way to say his name. He's a guy from the Gorillas and Blur, and he, for some reason, decided to make an entire album around the Chinese like epic story Journey to the West. And Monkey <laughs> Bee is just an absolute banger which i encourage you to to listen while watching the youtube video he made a, a video to go with it and yeah it's it's one of my go-tos when i just need some like i just need some fun china vibes i just need some like weird weird fun china related things in my life i put on monkey b man hadrian thanks for watching the part of china thanks for having me enjoy it see you next time <laughs>